Good morning, church. Good morning to all you online. Great to be with you today. Last week, as Terry said, we started a series called Brand New, looking at the book of Acts. Acts is a story of the church when it was brand new, when it first began. And as we look for the brand new things that God has for us at Redeemer, it's imperative that we start by refocusing, by realigning our focus to the church as Jesus originally intended it. Because oftentimes our understanding of the church varies greatly from what the church looked like when it was first launched. When we think of church, we oftentimes think of a service like we are a part of right now. And maybe like me, you grew up going to church. You might think of having to sit there as a child very still and very quiet. And maybe your sister poked you in the side and then when you retaliated, she made a big fuss. And then maybe your father gave you that look that clearly lets you know that if this continues, there will be consequences after the service. And then when your father, maybe he refocused his attention up front, your sister smiled at you and stuck out her tongue and gave you a sassy face. And maybe I'm just projecting my own experiences onto you. <laughs> Sounds like I still need a little emotional healing, doesn't it? But the church was not launched as a service. The church began as a movement around one single event in history, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the disciples would not stop talking about it. After the Holy Spirit came during Pentecost, 120 or so of Jesus' followers flooded the streets of Jerusalem. And they said, hey, remember back a couple months ago when this Jesus claimed to be God and he was crucified not too far from here and rose from the dead just over there? And people respond, responded with conviction and repentance. And this movement began with all this energy and this activity around the local church. Because those early church followers knew that this was not about a hierarchy or, or bands or banners or Bibles or even a building. They understood that this was a message that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who came to save the world. In all religions, there are rules, and there are rule breakers, and the question becomes, what do I do about the rules that I've broken? And Jesus comes to this world and said this, I'm the solution to the dilemma. I've come to forgive your sins. And these Jewish followers flooded the streets, saying, he's risen, it's true, you can now have peace with God. On that first day, it says 3,000 men became followers, and a couple weeks later, it says 2,000 more. So today, as we pick up the story, about 5,000 men had embraced the message of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. And that's important because that's over 10% of the population at that time. And it's important because at this time in Jerusalem, there was this very sensitive, somewhat tenuous balance of power between Rome and the Jewish religious authorities. And this balance is being disrupted by all of these followers talking about Jesus and this brand new movement. So Peter and John, the number one of two guys at the time, were arrested. They spent the night in jail. They're confronted by the authorities who basically say, quit talking about the resurrection and quit talking about the name. They don't even want to mention his name. And Peter and John spend the night in jail and then the next morning they're reprimanded and they go back and they meet with the believers. But instead of hunkering down and saying, okay, Disciples, let's tone this down a bit. Maybe we shouldn't talk about the resurrection or even use Jesus' name. It's not what they prayed. Instead of doing that, they prayed the first prayer ever recorded by this brand new movement called the church. Acts 4.29 records this prayer. It's there for you on the screen. Now, Lord, consider their threats 
and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand and heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Boldness is what got them thrown into jail in the first place. And now they pray for more of it. And they go back on the streets and they preach again, knowing that they're going to get themselves in trouble. And so as we look at the brand new church, we can't help but be just overwhelmed by this brand new boldness. Now, I understand that we are all experiencing a large amount of uncertainty right now. Lots of upheaval. And I know that facing those things can cause some fear and some anxious thoughts and some worries. But truth be told, we live in one of the safest places in the world. And so going through those challenges, my question to us this morning is, is is it making you more timid or more bold? If you want to know how it's affecting your boldness, you can oftentimes look at how we pray. Oftentimes we'll pray, you know, God, help us to have a safe trip, which is a great prayer. But in reality, people from other parts of the world will look at us and say, safe trip? You have this road system and these highways and seatbelt laws and seatbelts and cars that have all these crash things on it. I mean, we ride around in the back of pickups. Or we pray, oh, Lord, help my kid to do well in school. And people from other parts of the world are going, your kids get to go to school? Huh, that's pretty cool. Or prayers like, Lord, bless me. And again, people from other parts of the world are like, are you serious? I mean, you, you have so much blessing, you don't even know what to do with it all. And you're praying, bless us. I mean, when you stop and look at the church universal around the world and then focus on our version of Christianity, it can be kind of embarrassing. Of all the Christians in the world, we have the least to fear. And the most important reason to be bold. And so my question is, church, have we lost our boldness? I think so, and I think part of the reason is because we are so blessed. Now, hear me very clearly. You should never, ever feel guilty or bad about being blessed. Never. You should feel grateful, and you should feel responsible. We have been blessed by so much. As we look at this brand new church, my prayer is that would fill us with boldness, a brand new boldness. As the disciples kept sharing the message of Jesus and more people embrace it, word spreads. And now people from surrounding communities are bringing their lame and their sick and, their, and the, 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 those that are, kneeling, that are blind and need healing because they've heard that this group of followers called the way at this moment, you can bring the sick to them and they'll pray for them and they'll be healed. Because when Jesus came and ushered in the kingdom of God, he gave them and he gives us that ability, the power to heal. And so now you have all these people that are in Jerusalem because of this Pentecost festival, but now all these other people are coming because of the healing that's taking place and the message that people are responding to. And it's filled with more people. And like I said, there's this delicate balance of power between Rome and Jerusalem. The temple at this time is the epicenter of Jewish activity. And Rome is fine with the Jews doing their little religious thing as long as they pay their taxes and don't cause any trouble. 
And the religious leaders at the time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they've kind of placed themselves as the go-between between these two cultures, trying to maintain this balance. But now this group of followers of Jesus are upsetting this balance of power. Now nobody's showing up for the Pharisees' worship, and they, they're starting to wonder what's going on. And so they ask the people, and the people say, well, you know, Peter might not be the greatest of preachers, but you know what? We brought grandma to him, and they prayed over her, and she got healed. So we're going there. And in Luke, or sorry, in Acts 5.17, Luke tells us that the religious leaders became jealous. Remember, they'd already arrested Peter and John, and that didn't work. And so now they arrest all the disciples, probably thinking, okay, let's just gather all these ringleaders. Let's put an end to this right now. They throw them in jail, hoping that, you know, overnight they'll get a little fearful. And then the next morning, they're going to take them out and scare the Jesus out of them. Luke says, during the night, an angel comes and opens the door and the apostles walk out. And the religious leaders send for the prisoners, but they're not there. The next thing they know, they hear that the apostles are back in the temple area, preaching the name of Jesus, and so now they're absolutely furious. In verses five, Acts 5.27, says, The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. The Sanhedrin are the lawyers, and the high priest is kind of the one in charge. His word is law. And in 28, it says, we gave you strict orders not to teach in his name. Again, don't even mention his name. Which is kind of weird because even in our culture today, thousands of years later, that name is disruptive. I mean, in the marketplace or at schools, you can talk about God, you can talk about love, you can talk about other religions, but when you mention the name of Jesus, oftentimes people want you to stop. Acts 5.28 says, we gave you strict orders not to teach in his name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. <laughs> Which is quite ironic. I mean, Peter must be thinking, guys, don't you remember a couple months ago? I mean, we all saw what happened. <laughs> I mean, I know what it's like to deny Jesus. I did it myself. But now that he's been resurrected, I have this new boldness. And he says, if it sounds like you're guilty, it's because you are. Because he says in 529, then Peter and the other apostles replied, we must worship God rather than obey human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. And here's why Christianity is the culmination of all religions. It says this in 532, we are witnesses of these things. In other words, it's not just something we've heard about or something that we believe. We saw it. We're witnesses of these things. And so the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, the religious leaders were furious and wanted to put them to death. They're thinking, we put their ringleader to death, Jesus. Let's just take care of these 12 as well, and let's just put an end to this thing. Next part to me is fascinating. In, in 534, it says, a Pharisee named Gamaliel a teacher of the law, who is honored by all the people. In other words, he's got a lot of clout. He's pretty famous. Stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to, to be put outside for a little while. He wants the men put out so that he can tell what he thinks is, should happen. And he basically says, you've executed one. Do you want to execute 12 more and make them 12 more martyrs? And so here's what he says. He says, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thetis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, 
all his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. Okay? They all remember Thetis, and so they, they realized, oh yeah, he tried to raise up a little something, Rome squashed him like a bug, it all went quiet. Again, in Acts 5.37, he says, after him, Judas the Galilean. We know a lot more about Judas the Galilean. He lived in a time, Scripture tells us, that when Syria decided to do a census. And the reason they wanted to do a census was they wanted to figure out how many more people had moved into the area so they could raise their taxes. And Judas the Galilean said, we're not going to participate in the census, and he started a revolt. In fact, the people that followed this Judas the Galilean became known as zealots. That's where the name began. And we know that one of Jesus' disciples was a zealot. But he says, after him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of a census and led a band of people in revolt. And they would have remembered this, this revolt about taxes. And Gamaliel says, and he too was killed. All of his followers were scattered. In other words, once again, Rome squashed it. So Gamaliel is saying, guys, remember, we didn't get involved. If we'd gotten involved and supported Judas, we would have been squashed by Rome like he was. Or if we had sided with Rome, we would have lost the following of the people. We played it politically neutral, and it was perfect. Let's do it again. Gamaliel said, let's not let our hands get bloody. Let's just wait. Rome's not going to let anything in this area of the world get out of control. They'll solve our problem for us. So Gamaliel says, therefore, in this present case, talking about this movement of Jesus, this resurrection thing, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. In other words, if this is just a human thing, Rome's going to squash it. Don't worry about it. Listen to his next insight. But if this is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourselves fighting against God. Gamaliel's saying <laughs> that the only way something's going to happen in this part of the world is if it's an act of God, because otherwise Rome's going to squish it. And which is ironic, because do you know what are, is more prevalent in the city of Rome than any other city in the world Today? Crosses. Crosses that represent the single crucifixion. Crosses that we know about because of the resurrection. Rome is oftentimes considered the epicenter of Christianity. And Gamaliel was exactly right. The only thing that could best Rome would be an act of God. And the religious leaders liked Gamaliel's reasoning. They said his speech persuaded them in verse 40. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Now, it's so easy just to kind of read over that word and think, oh yeah, they had them flogged. I think what changed it for me and maybe some of you is seeing that movie, The Passion of the Christ. Flogging became so much more real. We realized it was, in many cases, a death sentence. We saw the person of Jesus in that movie, you know, whipped with these leather strips with shards of stone in them until the person's insides, their organs were exposed. And for several hours, these 11 apostles stood in line and watched as a temple guard flogged, permanently scarring the bodies of those closest to them for talking about something that they had witnessed, they'd seen themselves. And now going forward, every time they changed shirts, every time they swam or took a bath, it was a visual reminder of what happened to them. I read that and I think, wow. I'm grateful that the message even got it out of the first century because if that was me, <laughs> I might have just kept my mouth shut. 
But listen to the response in Acts 5.40. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And in verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Wait a second. Permanently disfigured, to some extent a criminal, and they're rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. That's convicting to me. That's hard for me as I read it this week. So often I get a little hesitant because somebody might say something negative about me. They might not think fondly of me. But they're saying that to, be, to have suffered, to be disfigured for the name of Jesus is the thing I am most proud of. <laughs> he gave his life for me, I'll give my skin for him. He gave his life for me, I'll give up my reputation for him. In our world, he gave his life for me, I'll give up that bonus or that job or that A on that assignment. They were not ashamed, it was their most prized possession. As I said, we're so extraordinarily blessed. And that's a good thing. God, help us to be just great stewards of that blessing, not to allow it to strip us of our boldness. After they were flogged, it says in Acts 5.42, day after day, in the temple courts, from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. That blows me away. Their challenges made them more bold. I mean, what do I do with that? Part of me wants to just push pause here, and for five minutes, let's just sit in silence in front of the Holy Spirit and allow him to strip away our timidness, to convict us of our apathy. That would be a good thing. It's my challenge for you this week. Or I could come up here and I could tell stories of people who have been, you know, cut off from their families or killed for their faith, but those stories seem so distant and far away. It's easy to listen to them and go, wow. But it's so far removed, we just then go, okay, let's go have lunch. So instead, I just want to challenge us with a couple of little boldness baby steps this morning. A few thoughts about that. First, bold is deciding to say something when it would be easier to say nothing. If you pause and think, you can all think of a moment, probably very recently, where you had an opportunity to kind of be a bit bold, share something about your faith, and you hesitated. And if you can't think of one, it's probably because you're just so wrapped up and busy and apathetic that you don't even, it doesn't even dawn on you. I was talking to a friend of mine, Matt, last night, and he was talking about a situation at work where he is a worker who is struggling. And Matt could have easily just said, you're done, pack your bags, move on. But this person struggles with alcoholism and struggles with his own self-esteem. And Matt said, my heart just goes out to him. So I was gracious to him. I've encouraged him. I've given him chance after chance. At times, it's frustrating. I've tried my best to just live out my faith and talk about it when, when the opportunity arises, but I don't want to be you know, forceful on him because he's just going to back away. And Matt prays for him. He's in a study with some other guys and one of the other guys says, Matt, whatever it is you're doing, keep doing it because it's changing him. God is working in his heart. Chance to be bold when it's easier to say nothing. Bold is taking advantage of the opportunities that present themselves. You know, we're, we're 
starting an online Alpha course. We asked you to pray last week, and I know Terry's going to challenge us at the end. Who is God calling you to invite to it? It's great because the geographical barriers are no more. There are people that are doing this course from all over the United States and in other parts of the world. At the same time, I'm going to be one of the leaders. It's going to be fun. I mean, small group leaders. Who can you invite? Who can you be bold with? I was convicted of that as I was speaking at the first service. I had a young gentleman that I really enjoy. He was playing in the worship band last week. He was going to come and share his story this morning just about someone who was bold with him. But he got called into work this morning, and I got a text. And so I've got permission to share it. But Ashton, some of you know, seventh grade kid, kind of on that teetering point where am I going to kind of do what I'm supposed to do or kind of get in trouble? And he was kind of going down that troubled path. And a buddy of his said, hey, come to Faith Haven with me. Ashton's like, okay. Goes to camp and experiences Jesus Christ, and life is turned upside down. Ashton had begun to play an instrument just a little while earlier than that, and this idea of worshiping God wholeheartedly, like at campfire, just blew him away. Completely changed who he is. I've not seen a a more bold inviter when it comes to church camp than him. And I think of him, and I think he's a senior now. Life's been completely turned around. He's looking at going to school next year, and he's applied for Bible school. I'm thinking, wow. Because the boldness of a little buddy saying, come to church camp with me. Now, we oftentimes think, oh, that's great for a young kid like that. Age doesn't matter. (laughs) You can be bold. You can invite. You can share something when it's easier just to keep your mouth shut. Might somebody become offended? Maybe. But we're not going to be flogged. <laughs> we're not going to be fed to lions. We're not going to be burned at the stake. Our taxes aren't going to be raised because of it. Fortunately, we live in a culture where none of that is the case. But that should make us more bold, not less. This is how this brand new church was started. I was thinking this morning, I'm grateful people in my life were bold with me. You know, mom taking me to hear Billy Graham in third grade. Running into the drummer's father uh, who's playing this morning and, and him inviting me to connect up in the church youth group. Oftentimes we just forget how amazing it is to have peace with God. Or we get too busy or too distracted, or too apathetic. Church, we need to be bold. Someone listening now or somebody here, you know, listening live or in person could be thinking, this is what makes me nervous about Christianity. I mean, why can't they just keep it to themselves? Well, I got great news for you. Studies say that over 97% of Christians do. They just keep it to themselves. (laughs) You can go to work and be around a Christian and not even know it. You can go to play golf with some people and not even know it. Be neighbors with Christians and not even know it. We have to stop being afraid that it might cost us something. I 
We have to be those who boldly proclaim. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave what was most precious to him, his son, to be our sacrifice, that whoever believes in him will never perish, but have everlasting life. This last week we've had a passing of a few wonderful dear saints of Redeemer. And I was thinking of them and thinking of how they have stepped into eternity. And I was thinking of my own time when that comes, and I was thinking of God looking at me and saying, hey, John, just so you know, when you talk to that person, <laughs> that was a link in a chain for them becoming a follower of Jesus, and they're here today because of you. Hearing those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Hoofta. That's not only, that's convicting, that's challenging. The only way forward for us as a follower of, followers of Jesus Christ is if we become more bold. We can gather. We can have our, 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 our wonderful services and our great fellowship and our kumbaya moments and our friendship and all those things. And if that's all we do, we will die a slow, apathetic death. Or we can take Jesus' challenge and look at this new church and pray for that brand new boldness and become winsome and amazingly loving and affect other people's lives for all eternity. That's what we need to be about. So as I close today, might feel a little awkward, might be a little different. I want us to join in unison and all pray that first prayer that the followers of Jesus Christ prayed. It's short, it's to the point, but it says it so powerfully. So I'd like you to stand. If you're so willing, just as a physical outward expression, open up your hands. And we're gonna pray this together out loud in unison. Okay? Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Amen.